0: hello and welcome to the better human podcast my name is adam wagner and i'm a barrister specializing in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights today i'm going to be discussing with two excellent guests the overseas operations service personnel and veterans bill 2019-21 That may sound like a pretty technical description, but what this bill does is potentially give immunity or even impunity to members of the armed forces for serious offences, including torture and murder that happened over five years ago. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia Skeets, who is the Chief Executive of the excellent non-governmental organisation Freedom From Torture, and David Allen Green, who is a lawyer, blogger, tweeter, and has also produced an excellent video on the Financial Times website um, and on YouTube on this very bill explaining what it means better human podcast is kindly supported by goldsmiths law and their pioneering llb undergraduate program taught in london are you interested in studying law take your first step towards becoming a solicitor or barrister with our qualifying law degree to learn more and apply please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law If you enjoy this podcast and you want to make sure it keeps going and is sustainable, then please consider contributing a few pounds a month to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. The system has changed that I use and you can now contribute in pounds rather than dollars. So thank you very much for joining me, Sonia and David. Um, I, I thought we'd start with... A little explanation of what this, what is actually going on. What is the bill that we are worried about, and what does it do? David, do you want to start?
1: Yeah, the bill is still only a bill. It is still only in the House of Commons. Uh, so the law has not changed yet. Uh, but if the bill becomes law in its current form, one significant effect would be to make it far more difficult to prosecute certain offences against serving or past service personnel. In particular, it would make it far more difficult to prosecute for war crimes such as torture. We have to be careful what the bill doesn't do. The law doesn't change the substantive law. It is still a criminal offence to torture somebody or to commit a war crime, both under domestic and international law. So the actual substance of the law isn't changing. What is changing is that for certain historic uh, incidences, uh, there will be. It will be more difficult to bring a prosecution. It's already highly difficult to bring one, and there's only ever been one successful prosecution for a war crime since the UK signed up to the so-called Rome Statute uh, nearly twenty years ago. But it's. What the bill will do once law is to add additional burdens, one of which, which has to be discharged, is that it has to be exceptional to bring a prosecution because there will be a presumption against prosecution. What this means in practice is if the Crown Prosecution Service has sufficient evidence to bring a prosecution for torture or war crime and it is in the public interest to do so, the so-called code tests, which the CPS has to follow in every criminal prosecution, even if it is a realistic chance of prosecution and conviction, the government will still require a prosecutor to decide against prosecuting unless ex- unless it is exceptional. So what, in essence, we're going to have is a strange category of law of unexceptional war crimes
0: and unexceptional torture. So, so, so what will be unexceptional war crimes and what will be exceptional war crimes under this under this bill? Well, we don't know. But one thing which will be clear
1: is that it will be more difficult for a prosecutor to be satisfied that they can bring a prosecution. And the one thing which prosecuting war crimes has shown us over the last 20 years is that it is already incredibly difficult to to bring war crimes and torture prosecutions against serving and past service personnel. And it's the one area of law which one would think requires less of a problem to bring a prosecution.
0: And, and certain offences are excluded, um, as I understand it, from the um from the operation of this um five-year um you know uh, bar on bringing or par- almost bar on bringing prosecutions what would and do you know what those are
1: yes there's a list of uh, offenses of a certain type in 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 schedule one and they are held to be so dreadful so heinous that they could never be treated as accept- uh, unexceptional And so, the moment a prosecutor believes there's sufficient evidence, etc., they will be prosecuted. You would think that war crimes and torture would be Schedule One offences, but they're not.
0: So, so war crimes and torture are the are the non-excluded. So they are that they fall into the five-year period, the the, the five-year exclusion. Yes,
1: the five-year category is this presumption against prosecution only kicks in after five years. So in effect, what this is dealing with are all the bad things which happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. The government just basically wants to put a lid on any further criminal prosecutions of service personnel for the bad things that happened in the first decade of this century.
0: Yeah, except for um, certain sexual violence
1: schedule one offenses right so
0: the schedule offenses so sexual violence i mean it, it, it that that is there's there's a number of of concerning things about this bill but just but but that that just seems um illogical to to exclude sexual offenses but not torture or other war crimes
1: well in effect they can hack certain parts of your body off and that would be fine but if they filmed it that would be an offense
0: yeah, well, that that does that that, that is um, worrying. I mean, it's, so so let's um, let's start discussing this. I think by putting the case for the bill, at least from the from the perspective of the government, why why are they doing this? What's the what's the justification?
1: The excuse, rather than the justification, is that they believe that there has been undue litigation in respect of what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, that there has been compensation culture, that there has been sort of tank-chasing lawyers who have been making lawyers' lives a misery over bringing civil claims, which I actually think there's force to. I think there has been some bad things happen on civil compensation, and I think it's quite right that one lawyer in particular was, was struck off. But this bill does not deal with civil compensation claims in the presumption against prosecution. This is about prosecution. And I can't see any good argument for limiting prosecutions, and all the arguments which have been used, such as we don't like lawyers doing compensation claims, or that it would affect the decision-making of officers and soldiers on the field, don't apply, because war crimes in respect of torture happen away from the battleground in detention centres. So this will not affect any decision-making by a on-the-field officer. So, there, is, there were arguments for this bill but none of them actually add up
0: i mean, I mean there are the bill does deal with um to an extent uh, limitation periods under the human rights act and the um and, and for personal injury um which which does deal with or at least um it does relate to uh potential civil claims against the um Against the And to the extent the bill deals with civil
1: issues, I have no real problem with it. it. It my problem with this bill, as I set out in the a video recently for the Financial Times, is that it makes it far more difficult to bring a prosecution for war crimes under the Rome statute. And I can't see how that is acceptable by looking by pointing to other parts of the bill and say, Oh look, it deals with compensation claims as well. That's irrelevant. But making it more difficult to prosecute for war crimes can only be described as absolutely wrong.
0: Uh, yes, uh, and Sonia, I'm going to bring you in just just in a moment. I just want to clarify before I do that the in terms of the compensation claims, what the bill does is it. When we lawyers talk about limitation periods, we mean the time within which, from the, usually from the date of the event you are concerned by, you can bring a claim in a, in court for compensation and other remedies. So what they say. About personal injury claims is that if you're going to go beyond three years, um, the there will be some additional factors the court must have regard to um in in deciding whether to do that usually so that the usual rule is three years but you can extend that and that's the same for the um for the human rights act
1: but but the complaint i'm making about this bill adam is not to do with those provisions and I'm, i'm worried that listeners will get confused thinking about human rights compensation claims the problem with this bill is in respect of making it more difficult to make criminal prosecutions happen
0: yeah. Well, well, I mean, we can discuss that, but sorry, Sonia, um, how, what's your reaction to the bill and, and freedom from tortures sort of uh, issues with it?
2: So I'll, I'll kind of, if, if you don't mind, kind of come back to the big point, but just on the civil claims point, just to sort of offer a sort of slightly different um, opinion. So there is a kind of a half of this bill that does try to deal um, with civil claims and Freedom from torture would argue um, that there is very grave reason to be concerned also about that dimension of the bill. So effectively, they will be placing a six-year long stop um, on claims for compensation, um, which for, you know, for torture survivors or survivors of other um, very serious crimes is is really bad news indeed if you think about um, all of the challenges that, people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or other mental health complications arising from their bad experiences, you know, the struggles that they face in dealing with, with what they've experienced. And that's something that we know about very well at Freedom From Torture because we help survivors of torture to rehabilitate. And it can take a very long time, many years, for people to come to terms with what has happened with to them, um, it can take them a long time to build up the confidence to explore their avenues for, for justice. And this bill um, would make it very, very difficult for people um, to do that. And survivors who we work with, who are activists on these issues, have been very forthright in saying that there should be no expiration date um, on their ability um, to bring a claim. Now, under the Human Rights Act, um, there is a discretion um, for judges to expand the amount of time that somebody has to bring such a claim. And this bill um, fetters that discretion and in fact says that, you know, if it's after six years, um, the the judiciary can't exercise discretion in the favour of a survivor. This is absolutely contrary to the right to redress that is given to survivors of torture under the UN Convention Against Torture, which, of course, the United Kingdom is a party to. So there are serious international law complications that ensue from that dimension of the bill. But it's not only that. One of the other very controversial dimensions of the bars on civil claims after six years is that it would also act as a bar for service personnel who've been injured in the course of duty. And indeed, we know um, that between 2014 and 2019, the majority of the compensation claims brought against the Ministry of Defence were brought um, by servicemen and women. And this bill um, is an attempt to insulate the Ministry of Defence from those claims after six years. And this is very, very controversial within military circles. And the Royal British Legion, among others, um, has said that this needs to be amended, changed, ended um, as this bill proceeds through Parliament. I mean, it's it's an odd time
0: to do this, isn't it? Because f- from my experience and in, in my 11 years or so of practice the courts have become much more sensitive to the fact that victims of torture of sexual violence of of trauma generally will find it potentially extremely difficult to um, to face up to what's happened to them and to take get the courage or the you know the the, the mental will to go and bring a claim and therefore they've become much more amenable to arguments um, based around sort of psychological bars to bring in claims early. Um, And and it's strange that this bill seeks to say just in respect of the armed forces, we're going to reverse that trend entirely and put a hard stop not notwithstanding you know even if someone didn't doesn't know for 20 years what's happened to them because they 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 learn about it through um psychoanalysis that sort of thing that does sometimes happen with extreme trauma that they just would be completely barred from bringing a claim even if it was as far as i can see sexual violence in in that bit of the um the bill
2: and that i think you just touch on something that is so politically interesting and and troubling About this bill this exemption from the uh, the um, presumption against prosecutions for sexual offenses and everybody who's been looking closely at this bill is raising eyebrows um, at this very bizarre carve-out just for the sexual offenses and it's very very obvious that there was wrangling inside government on this and that Foreign Office, which has been championing the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict initiative, said that it could not allow a bill that so clearly cut against everything that they are trying to achieve via that, that initiative, not only justice but also the ending of and the tackling of stigma that survivors of sexual violence in conflict carry with them. So there is this kind of real perversity um, in the bill um, that David pointed out, this carve out for sexual offences only. And it just it just sort of you know, as you say, shines a light on how contrary this legislation is when you set it against all of these other progressive advances. Um, in our in our legal systems designed to make them more victim and survivor friendly. And it's a
1: deliberate decision to carve out war crimes and torture. In the consultation exercise for this bill, uh, it was suggested that war crimes, like the other offences which have just been discussed, should be within Schedule 1 of, of, of the bill so that they would be prosecuted as normal if there was sufficient evidence, etc., so the government, at some point, took the deliberate decision to, to change that and to actually have it so war crimes and torture were uh, not part of Schedule 1. And so the question which puzzles me is, why is the government going to do this? Because prosecutions are already incredibly difficult. And this just makes it something really difficult, even more difficult. What I'm trying to understand and what I'm finding difficult to understand is why the government is actually pushing for this now. And the only explanation I have is that uh, there is a minister in the Ministry of Defence, Mercer, who has a bit of a hobby horse about this. And he has been able to get this legislation as part of the government's legislative programme. But other than that, there doesn't seem to be any actual need for this legislation at the moment. And it is quite puzzling that the government is putting so much effort into bringing it.
0: Well, I think I think that you're probably right about Johnny Mercer being the at the centre of um, of pushing this legislation, and he has been for years. And and I think I mean it's worth discussing now. I think the the reason why this this legislation has managed to get from a, I, I hope I'm not saying this disparagingly, but hobby horse or at least a, a passion of an individual MP to a government policy. And I think the answer to that is whilst there may be, the actual legislation itself may not address this, there is significant sympathy with um, the armed forces and with members of the armed forces many of whom and, and johnny mercer of, of course himself served um, and and many of his good friends were you know in the in the age category that that were subject to these claims from iraq and afghanistan um th- there is some sympathy for the fact that they that a number of um many um uh, members of the armed forces have had to go through multiple investigations over the years um since two thousand and three to i guess uh, two thousand and eleven or so um of um that went nowhere in effect or or they were they 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 did they weren't found um to have been um they weren't they weren't made good the allegations now that's not to say that all allegations that, that that relates to all allegations but there certainly has been a lot of investigations
1: and i don't think the legal profession have uh acquitted themselves very well with some of these investigations and I think there is sympathy to be had with uh, the MOD to the extent that a lot of the claims do seem to have been ill-founded and there does seem to have been a misconduct by certain lawyers uh, and one lawyer in particular about how these claims were brought. And so to the extent that there have been abuses of process Uh, I think the government may have a point in actually trying to deal with the civil claims. Perhaps this isn't the best way of dealing with it, but I think the government has a legitimate interest because I think there were wrongs by our profession in how those civil claims were brought at times. But none of that, even at its highest, justifies making it more difficult to bring the prosecutions for war crimes if there's otherwise enough evidence for those prosecutions to be brought.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that, that gets to the crux of it, doesn't it, that the, the difference between, you, there may have been an issue with false allegations. Um, and we'll come on to, I think we need to talk about Baha Musa as well, David, and I think you've done some excellent work bringing that to light. Um, certainly a big part of my early career. Uh, but before we get to, to, to those genuine um allegations, there have been some false allegations, but that doesn't mean you cancel the opportunity to bring prosecutions about real offences that really, really happened.
2: I mean, I I would agree with that and also make the point, which many military commentators also have been making, that there just hasn't been a problem with unfounded, vexatious prosecutions. As David said earlier, there have been very few prosecutions brought um, historically in Britain for international crimes. What there have been is investigations, and some of them have been very lengthy and have led to to a decision that a prosecution, um, you know, should not be brought. And that has certainly um, led to a lot of ill ease um, inside um, the military. But the problem is with the investigations. And this bill says nothing about investigations. It does not deal with ineffectual, long-drawn-out, resource-intensive, um, flawed investigation.
1: Of course, by implication, if you're making it far more difficult to actually bring a prosecution at the end of the process, you will find it more difficult to justify having an investigation in terms of resources at the start of the process because it doesn't matter if they actually find enough evidence that there, an offence probably was committed and whatever, they've got to meet this second hurdle. So it's basically poisoning the well. It's not, it's not directly saying there should be no investigations, but it's going to make it more difficult to justify them in terms of resources.
2: So so what a lot of the people um, who, from a military perspective, are, are looking at this with kind of bemusement um, are saying is that, you know, this is the wrong solution to a problem that does exist. And what the Ministry of Defence should be doing instead of trying to pass this law is to sort out its investigation apparatus. And that is a point that, you know, is being made by, you know, Professor Michael Clark from the Royal United Services Institute, by General Sir Nick Parker, um, one of the most senior living um Army figures in Britain, you know, they are saying that this this bill is the wrong solution, and that you know what what should be done is instead is to kind of look really seriously at how to build a more competent investigatory capability, probably as General Sir Nick Parker has suggested, independently um, of the MOD, um, but which you know, is, is strong enough to enjoy the confidence both um, of people within the armed services and also those um, on the outside um, who are, you know, working um, with with victims, for example. So, I mean, that that's the kind of the really interesting thing here that you can see this bill as a monumental exercise in deflection in a way that kind of buys into a narrative that the government is aggressively pushing across a number of fronts at the moment against activist lawyers. And this is not just a culture war point, although it certainly serves that end. The culture war is a means to a number of ends, including a really serious agenda to clamp down on rights and not just for unpopular or marginalised groups, but ultimately for everybody. So you must see this legislation as part of a raft of measures that are designed to place the government, the executive, beyond the reach of the law. So here you have um, a bill that is trying to make it very difficult survivors um, of torture or other international crimes to pursue civil claims against the government and making it very difficult as well for prosecutions to be brought um, where these crimes are committed abroad more than five years ago. You also have a review underway into judicial review. You have a promise um, or a threat depending on your perspective. Um, of an updating of the Human Rights Act in a way that would roll back rights. And then you have a threat by Dominic Cummings as soon as Brexit's done to go after the European Convention on Human Rights. And there are other measures as as well, but I think it's really important that people look beyond the kind of posturing and all of the political mileage that the government gets from promoting, you know, a policy agenda that is anti-lawyer, anti-liberal, anti-human rights community, um, and look instead at what you know actually will be achieved in terms of a reconfiguration of the balance of power between the different arms of government.
1: I think there is an agenda, and it is a political agenda, and it is a government agenda, and it just happens that they fit together very well. Uh, The political agenda is to find, as you say, Sonia, cultural war points, buttons to press to own the libs, to cause outrage, and to basically entrench the government's position in terms of, of getting electoral or political support by basically saying outrageous, obnoxious things and getting people like us to go how dreadful it is. That is the political agenda. The government agenda is to, by bill by bill, Regulation by regulation, initiative by initiative, just make it more and more difficult to stop the government from doing things. Or to put it another way, trying to make it easier for the government to do things in an unchecked way. So we have this legislation. We have other legislation which effectively takes the uh, secret services outside of the remit of the law. We have legislation which will allow the government to legislate in respect of uh, the island of Ireland after... The after Brexit, without there being any legal challenge. It is an ongoing process, and the politics of it works quite well, but the real thing here is that the government just wants to remove any effective check or balance from it being able to do what it wants.
2: And this is part of a global swing towards more authoritarian styles of government, and it is just so very important that people here in Britain see all of these manoeuvres as steps towards that direction it's so terribly terribly alarming and it's it's not a left or right point you know it's a point about whether you believe in the principle of a government under law under domestic law or and under international law as well and there are sort of assaults that are being carried out now you know, on 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 both of those ideas, you know, the international rule of law or the rules-based international system, as the Foreign Office likes to call it, um, and, you know, through the kind of measures that David just described, um, through our domestic legal arrangements as well. So this is one of the reasons why freedom from torture is so very concerned about this direction of travel in Britain, because we work with survivors of torture who've come from states that are much further along this authoritarian road. And we've seen, you know, that it starts in these small ways and ends up, you know, in a situation where you have an unaccountable executive um, and, and from there lies, lies tyranny and some of the most dreadful human rights abuses imaginable. Now Britain, you know, is not about to become a police state, I'm not suggesting that, um, but we are definitely on the road to dismantling a lot of the legal checks and balances which have been so central to the history of this country and our reputation as a beacon of freedom and of hope and of of an open society respecting human rights of liberalism. You know, this is this is what's on the line
0: i agree entirely with what you both said about the 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 mood music that's that's happening in, in respect of this government and i think it goes back really to it starts it, it, over a decade ago maybe more um this sort of attempt to undermine the human rights act etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I want to try to pre- present a, another narrative which i think f- can fit into that narrative as well which is around the importance of the development of human rights principles um in terms of governance of the armed forces going back to the 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 beginnings of the convention when when the european convention started to bite in the 70s and i'm thinking particularly about ireland versus the uk and the hooded man case which was about the um the the five techniques techniques which the five techniques which were being used by the, the the British security forces in Northern Ireland: hooding, stress techniques, um, and the like. And there's a very interesting story to tell about the the fact that the armed forces were subjected to and have been subjected to. Greater scrutiny because of these human rights um, principles, and 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 I think that the sequel and the strange sequel to the Hooded Man case was the Bahamusa inquiry, um, where and I'll, I'll let David describe it. Although I, I acted in that case, I acted for actually hundreds of soldiers. Um, it, was, it was really the first case that I did after pupillage. It lasted about a year, um, but but there's an in, there's such an interesting uh, narrative. Adam, are
1: you saying you're one of these? Dreadful lefty activist lawyers that go around defending soldiers from allegations. Yeah, well,
0: it, well exactly. I mean, I, I spent I spent oh, the really best part s- of um, I think three years defending soldiers in in that inquiry and also the the Al Sweedie inquiry, which are two sides of a very interesting coin. But do, do you want to, David? Do you want to to talk about Baha Musa because that seems to be to me a, a, a the example which which proves why this bill is so problematic.
1: Yes, it's 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 a distinctive example uh mainly because it's just so incredibly well documented uh but just by way of background although uh if you looked at the great law reports and the great authorities of English legal history, you will find that in the words of the uh, House of Lords, the common law of England has constantly set its face against torture in that really self congratulatory way. On the other hand, agents of the state, of the United Kingdom state, have tortured uh, for quite a considerable amount of time. They do it if they basically can get away with it.
0: And, and as end, as Can I just of, interrupt? As have pretty much every other army in I history. I about to
1: come to that point, yeah. Adam. You don't have to throw in your bones <laughs> and BBC point now.
0: Go God, Sorry. Sorry for, sorry for interrupting. Sake,
1: let me develop a point without going to all BBC on me. I'll
0: be the judge.
1: For grief's sake. Anyway. The UK government, has, notwithstanding the common law uh, uh, prohibition of torture, has tortured, and this happened, for example, in Kenya, and is documented for as happening in, in Kenya in the late nineteen fifties. It then happened in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in the early seventies. Although there was a Strasbourg case which said that was inhuman treatment, but not actually quite torture, as if there was a distinction. Uh, so. It does happen, and Ian Cobain has done a very good book on the history of torture by the UK state called Cool Britannia. And so what happened in the first decade of this century is you had soldiers in Iraq having to police civilians and putting the civilians, arresting the civilians, detaining them, putting them in detention centres. This is far away from the front line. These were not battlefield decisions. These were decisions away from the battlefield. And what you have are soldiers who obviously have not joined up to do this and officers who probably haven't got any experience or training in, in interrogation techniques, suddenly having to interrogate these su- suspected uh, terrorists and, and guerrillas or whatever, and they just resorted to the so-called five techniques, the five ways of softening somebody up for an investigation, which uh, were prohibited uh, after they were inflicted upon Northern Irish civilians in the early 70s. The problem is, is that nobody stopped them, nobody seems to have known any better, and quite a few soldiers seem to have got carried away with it, one soldier in particular described by a judge in an official report as a violent bully. It happened, but the only thing which made the Bahamusa case so distinctive is that all the other victims didn't die, but Musa did. And when he died, he had 93 surface injuries. He had basically been tortured to death. This was inescapable. They couldn't sort of pretend this hadn't happened. And that, in in turn, turned made that there was lines of inquiry which led to a court martial and led to the Gage Report on 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 the incident and because of the gauge report we have three volumes of evidence of what actually happened in that detention center and it's utterly horrific and there are findings of fact against a whole range of junior soldiers and also about lines of command you couldn't wish for a better documented source for something bad happening for torture in practice and despite that there was only one successful prosecution of a relatively junior soldier, a Lance Corporal, and he pleaded. So there was no finding of guilt against a not, guil- uh, a not guilty uh, defence. He pleaded, copped it, and then actually just spent, I think, a year in prison, if memory serves. And so this is the factual background. We have lots and lots of examples which could be followed through, but the government has dropped the inquiry into criminal behaviour by by our soldiers. But I I suspect a number of senior soldiers and former soldiers know some very bad things went on and are very relieved that prosecutions could be closed down. And yes, Adam, other states have done the same, and other states who we would say are allies, like France and America, have well-documented examples. France with Algeria and America also in Iraq. But in respect of UK law, it has shown that the common law, which to the House of Lords, has always set its face very firmly against torture, just failed. There were not legal protections there. And what the government is doing is making it even more difficult to rely on things like the Rome Statute, which actually made sure that we had to comply with these international human rights standards.
0: The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month That's just over two pounds via our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash better human and if a couple of hundred people do that then that will make the podcast sustainable and i can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects And, and, and sonia um that isn't the only issue arising from from the war on terror is it there was there's other quite significant um, allegations relating to torture around the armed forces and, and the security services.
2: Yes, and in fact, it's a really under-explored dimension of this bill that it does not only affect the battlefield. The scope of the bill also includes peacekeeping operations and operations dealing with terrorism. And I think that takes us very directly into the history, the recent history of British collusion in torture by our security partners. And the Intelligence and Security Committee identified hundreds of cases in which Britain had been involved in torture and detainee um, mistreatment. And as well, you know, we know um, that the Ministry of Defence has settled literally hundreds of civil claims that have been brought. They weren't in the end, litigated through to trial because the Ministry of Defence paid out. So I think it's very important that listeners understand that the Baha Musa case, which is really exceptional for the reasons that David described, is not the only instance um, in, in recent history of, of British involvement in torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. Another telling so,
1: example is the Mal Mau litigation, which took place around 10 years ago. Uh, The government adamantly uh, refused to admit that anything bad had happened in Kenya during the emergency. Uh, The families of Kenyans who had been tortured and the surviving Kenyans who had been tortured litigated. And the government said no and took every sort of technical legalistic objection to whether the Governor General of, of Kenya was a part of the UK state or not, until, Suddenly, the MOD found a whole stash of documents in the archives it thought it didn't have and thought it had got destroyed. And then immediately, the government then uh, settled for substantial amounts for all the Kenyan survivors. And so it isn't just Iraq, it isn't just Northern Ireland. It was something the government did again and again, but thought it could never, thought it would always get away with.
2: And what we're seeing now is... An incredible attempt to meddle with the legal framework for delivering accountability for involvement in torture and other human rights abuses. I mean, this is a a kind of step that goes even further um, than Donald Trump and you know and his efforts to pardon convicted war criminals and the like. I mean, what we have here is a British government actually trailblazing an attempt to block. Accountability via this presumption against prosecution and the other barriers to prosecution contained in the bill, and these long stops on civil claims. And one of the points that the Survivors Speak Out network from Freedom from Torture repeatedly makes, including when they're talking to members of parliament and others about the dangers of this bill, is that this is a really dangerous template, a really dangerous example for other states, including less liberal states, to, to follow in efforts to shut down justice for very serious human rights abuses.
1: And it's quite sneaky in its way. It isn't actually doing a frontal attack on the substantive law under the Rome Statute. It isn't saying, oh, we want to uh, not actually no, any longer follow international law. It's doing it the other way round, which is to just make it procedurally more difficult to actually assert rights or to have certain standards upheld. And this then, to, you know, pairs up with what you said, Sonia, about making it more procedurally difficult to get the a judicial review remedy. They're not changing the grounds of judicial review itself, or they don't seem likely to. But what they're canvassing are ideas to make it even more difficult to hold the government to account, whilst whilst making it uh trying trying to say that we're not making it ultimately that more difficult the law will still be the same we just want to make it so that unmeritous cases aren't aren't proceeded with and under that cloak the government is trying to ride in what it can get away with without any redress
0: it's it one interesting factor that i want to pick up on it relating to what you said about investigations and and failed investigations is that there is going to be, and I only read this today, a judge-led inquiry into the military police and whether they are fit for purpose, whether they are doing their job properly. And one thing that certainly came through in both the Bahamusa Musa and Al-Swidi inquiries was that the military police investigations were not up to scratch. And that's, you know, the reason the Al-Swidi inquiry got off the ground at all is because the MOD um, failed in its disclosure exercise in a judicial review um, claim. And, and and the court literally threw its hand up and, hands up and said, well, we're just going to have to, to be a judge-led inquiry because we can't trust that you're mark that you're marking your own homework properly. So I, I just want to pick up on that point that th- th- this is interesting that there could be a different narrative here that if the problem isn't the lawyers, perhaps it's actually the fact that the investigations are just shoddy in the first place.
1: Yes, uh, spell out what happened with Al Sweedie because the facts are quite different from Bahamazo, aren't they?
0: Yeah, well, so, so, so should we do this first, and then I'll come yeah. to Al Um Do you want to just talk about the the failure of investigation, Sonia? Do you want to do you want to go into that?
2: Yeah, I mean, just to say that the timing of this announcement of a judge-led inquiry is really curious, <laughs> and it's really obvious that this is um, an attempt by the government to tackle the criticisms that this bill is the wrong solution to the right problem. And that's the criticisms coming, you know, from friendly military circles, you know, who otherwise are, you know, very united behind the government's analysis that there is a need for measures to um, protect troops from long drawn out investigations that lead nowhere. So, you know, this is one of the criticisms being directed at the government Um in, as the bill passes through Parliament, and they've decided to deal with it by setting up a judge-led inquiry. Now, the Labor opposition has rubbished the idea and said there has been, you know, review after review with hundreds of recommendations about how to sort out the investigations, um, which remain unimplemented. But it's obviously a manoeuvre to try and keep this bill on track. Mm-hmm.
1: It does seem very curious that this is the moment they announced that uh, part of a problem will be solved by a judicial inquiry, uh, and you know there is a certain sense of nostalgia of the old days where judges led inquiries were there to solve all sorts of problems, which sort of went away out of fashion with Leveson. Uh, what I would say about the investigations is, yes, of course, investigations should be better, but then they do need to be genuinely independent uh, of, of those being investigated. And part of the problem with uh, the various judicial inquiries is that they have had to sort of recreate the documentary record and and recreate the actual factual matrix at such a long time afterwards, uh, and often indirectly relying on other people to provide the documents. What you, we need is somebody closer in time and place to the allegations to be able to go in against the wishes of, of the people being investigated and locate secure and and keep uh, the contemporaneous documentary record and and interview people at the time nobody thinks that judicial inquiry after judicial inquiry like the like the Speedy and and the Baba Maza ones are satisfactory ways of actually getting to the bottom of what happened
0: no and i i i mean the wording of the um, the sun article Um, which announces this inquiry, is I think really interesting. Um, Shoddy internal probes in Iraq and Afghanistan left troops exposed to lawyer-led witch hunts because the military acquittals were considered unreliable in civilian courts. Courts. Isn't that an interesting um, framing of the issue, that the real problem is the original internal probes, which left the troops exposed to the lawyers, which in other words means the lawyers had to get involved because the the people who who needed redress hadn't had redress through the internal probes.
2: Mm -hmm. It's just more evidence that this bill is pointing the blame everywhere but the MOD, when the more you dig into the issues the more one realises that there are deep problems inside the MOD in respect of investigations, which is really what the government should be focusing on addressing, instead of robbing victims and survivors of their right to redress, and of putting the United Kingdom on a collision course with our very grave international obligations.
0: Shall I just talk about Al Sweedy for for a moment um
2: yes. because because I think Al
0: you do have to grapple with Al Sweedy to understand the, the 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 contours of this debate and why this bill has managed to become government policy now Al Sweedy was was a kind of disaster from start to finish um in in, in for everybody involved really for the lawyers for the soldiers um uh, you know and 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 it was a big waste of every of money in a way the the un, the underlying facts were there was an allegation there was a series of allegations that a group of detainees had been taken to a base um in southeastern iraq where the um where the brit's were in control in 2004 so Uh, not long after the events of Baha Musa and and very shortly after, I think, um, Abu Ghraib. So around exactly the same time as the Abu Ghraib, the American prison where there were some, the photographs of people being tortured were released. Um, There were allegations that these detainees were taken back to a base and tortured and murdered. And and the evidence was, and and then the bodies were taken away and, and buried somewhere and and those allegations were made at the time and they were part of a of a, propaga- a local propaganda campaign ag- against the british forces which was quite well organized and then they they sort of uh, eventually um, got to the british courts the uk courts through a judicial review which was a challenge against the the refusal by the ministry of defense to order for there to be a public inquiry into what had happened now the problem uh, at the judicial review was that the Ministry of Defence r- r- found in the in a room somewhere boxes and boxes of evidence about six weeks into the trial, and um, and another issue there, there were all sorts of curiosities and sort of problems. For example, an intelligence officer officer gave evidence that he had twice, I think it was twice, thrown a laptop full of evidence over the side of a ferry. Um, between Britain and France because he said that's how he disposed of his of his old laptop so it was a safe way of disposal and the court just said in the the court summons the treasury solicitor at the time I think it was Paul Jenkins actually um, who's passed away not that long ago to um, to give evidence which was extremely uh, uh, unusual he was cross-examined by the, the Ravinder Singh who's now Lord Justice Singh and the court just threw its hands up and said this, we do not trust the Ministry of Defence, we're extremely worried by what's happened, there needs to be a public inquiry. And a public inquiry happened and it turned, and the the outcome of it, the conclusion of it to very, very much summarise was the, the most serious allegations were all were, were made up, they were manufactured and they and and there were serious sort of consequences particularly for Phil Shiner who was the the lead um solicitor on on the complainant side who was eventually struck off um for it, it also for a number of irregular irregularities in the way that the case was was pursued and i hope that's a, an, an accurate enough summary of what happened but it but it really was i mean i i have to say one thing that and i talk about my personal experience I sat through as the most, I think the second or third most junior member of a large team representing hundreds and hundreds of soldiers. I sat through, I can't even count the number of um, conferences with with young, with soldiers who I guess were about 30, but who had been, uh, sorry, no, were probably in their late 20s, who were about 18, 19 at the time, who were sat in the conference with, with us, um, you know, hysterical in tears. Because they because they were being taken through what they considered to be um, a, a framing, they were being framed, and it was extremely difficult, and it was it was very eye opening, and it was very I was having acted in Bahamusa for soldiers who were you know to an extent culpable the um the the difference was extraordinary and and these were soldiers who it seemed like were being framed and they were suffering and many of them had had serious mental health issues many of them had broken marriages were alcoholics you know not not just because of this but because of their experiences and it felt very you know almost abusive um but on the other hand it was an investigation which was ordered because the Ministry of Defence messed up its own part of the process. So in terms of the rights and wrongs of it, um, I think, you know, it was a disaster from start to finish for everyone involved. I'll say that.
1: How, what would, how would you have done it differently, given the seriousness of the allegations? What could have been done differently, apart from VMOD dealing with its disclosure, document, uh, disclosure exercise better?
0: Well, I, I think I think the answer was probably that the I mean there was something like six investigations already by the time the um, by the time the judicial review happened that was part of the the atmosphere around these these allegations was that they'd been investigated over and over again but there were a number of flaws with the previous investigations and I think that did play a significant role from memory and I haven't reviewed the the report um, recently but from memory that was one of the big problems was that because there wasn't a, a reliable investigation which could be said look this has been it looked at properly and there's no we've that's discharged the investigative obligations of the state under the human rights act um the you know the, there's nothing else to say i think that was one of the problems and, and and the other problem was that there was um you know the mod did mess it up um but but on the other hand you know sometimes you do have false allegations and that in a way is what courts are there for is to is to decide what the truth is um, and sometimes the truth goes the way of one's one side, and sometimes, like in Bahamusa, side's the wrong word, but one one group, and and sometimes it goes the other. But I I, I think it's impo- there is the risk of being naive,
1: there is the risk of being gullible here. Yes, people make false allegations. Yes, lawyers can act in an improper and improper unprofessional way, and uh, act in a way which throws. J- dignity of justice into question this all is true but none of the problems identified go to actually making it more difficult to prosecute for war crimes when there is otherwise sufficient evidence to justify bringing a prosecution
0: yeah they were never charged they, not, not, none of the soldiers involved were ever far, charged with an offense
1: it was far uh shall we choose that awful word more upstream it was it was The changes to the legislation being proposed, uh, sorry, let me start again, the legislation being proposed does not directly deal with any of the grievances which quite legitimately can be expressed about the way the Al-Sredi inquiry proceeded. Nothing about Al-Sredi, nothing about anything else goes to actually making it right to make prosecutions more difficult for war crimes.
2: I I agree with that really strongly and and just would like to add that it is so intriguing seeing some of the veterans who have been dragged through these really difficult processes leading to no prosecutions coming so strongly behind this bill and and it kind of it sort of makes you you realize the power of a perception that the government is doing something and it almost sort of doesn't matter for some what that something is and whether it would actually tackle the problem as they you know as they've experienced or not and i think this is one of the great tragedies of this bill that survivors of some of the most terrible abuses imaginable are having their rights to justice thrown under a bus because of an attempt by the government to have a gesture you know, of, of action um, to satiate these really aggrieved veterans. And it, it's just, it's so depressing for me as the Chief Executive of Freedom From Torture, watching some of these debates taking place inside parliament and in the public domain where the survivor voices are, are just nowhere because it is a big, pantomime you know or, or kind of public kind of display of animosity between on the one side a, a veterans community and of course actually it's important to note that there are many veterans who are violently opposed to this legislation for all the problems that it it will bring and on the other hand the legal community oh, that's
1: probably the wrong adverb to say that they're violently opposed
2: yeah you, you're right <laughs> but I mean, um, some of some of them are some of the um, some of the kind of people who are talking to us um, from inside military circles, including those who who aren't prepared to put their heads above the parapet on it. I mean, they are they are terribly alarmed at the signal that this would send the world about the values of, of the British military and Britain's adherence to international norms. That after all, this country played such a formative role in shaping, you know, from, you know, the torture prohibition onwards to the Geneva Conventions, the shaping of the Rome Statute of the International Court. Britain played a leading Absolutely. role in all of these developments and, it, you know, through these procedural um, slights of hand, yeah. um, we are, we're backtracking on those commitments. And international law
1: in respect of torture and war crimes is difficult enough to gain... Any support for without it looking like victor's justice. And when we talk about war crimes, there are war crimes by all sides in an armed conflict. And if only the war crimes of one side are prosecuted, then international law is to a certain extent discredited because it only applies to one side and not the other. That happens anyway. And that's always going to happen because it's always going to be the winning side who are in a position to bring other people to justice. What this bill does horribly is entrenches into law that it is going to be more structurally difficult to prosecute serving or past service personnel than any other class of person who could be prosecuted under war crimes legislation because it will only be... uh, service personnel who will get these special protections after five years. Nobody else will. And so we are privileging our service personnel in respect of war crimes. And this isn't just de facto. Of course, it's always going to be like that de facto. But it's actually making it part of the law that it will be more difficult to prosecute them. And this sends not only a dreadful signal to service personnel saying that we are not taking this seriously it also sends a signal to people who are having to deal uh with our on the battlefield who is going to actually expect uh fair treatment if we are privileging our own service personnel in respect of serious allegations of war crime and torture
0: i think we're going to have to finish there um because I, i this conversation really does get to the heart of a number of super important issues um, and no doubt there will be another conflict at some point in the not too distant future. Unfortunately, that's just the way of the world, and mm-hmm. it seems crucial to make sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater um, in this time of peace, although tumultuous time of, uh, of, of international peace for the, for the British armed forces. But thank you so much, um, Sonia and David, for taking the time to discuss the issue. Thank you, Adam.
2: Thank you. That was fun.
0: So thank you very much to David Allen Green, who is a lawyer and blogger, and Sonia Skeets, who is the chief executive of Freedom From Torture. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. Are you interested in studying law? Take your first step towards becoming a solicitor or barrister with Goldsmiths Qualifying Law Degree. To learn more and apply, please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. And if you want to support this podcast, then please leave a positive review on wherever you find your podcasts. And also go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can find supporting materials for this episode and also contribute a few pounds a month to make sure that this podcast stays sustainable and can keep going. So thank you very much to my research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames, my editor, Sammy Bruff. I am Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.